Stay hungry, stay foolish. Thanks also to our friends at Zai, a global fintech services company specializing in foreign exchange and payments and supporting innovation in all its forms, including this show. Check them out at hellozai.com. Today's book tells us how digital platforms are inverting our economy and what that means for our public high schools. It is a fascinating read for those of us interested in transformation of any kind, innovation, Bitcoin, education, and universal basic income. Questions that arise include, what does the future look like as jobs continue to decline? Why will trends like decentralization and open source impact education? When does human bias impact economic viability? And how can anti-bias lead to an anti-fragile democracy and economy? Will artificial intelligence help us or hurt us? It's going to be one of those shows that we go down many, many rabbit holes. And I hope you stick with us. There's so many lessons in here for innovation of all types. We welcome the author of Education in the Digital Age, How We Get There, Nadav Zemmer. Welcome to the show. Oh, a pleasure to be here. Your your podcast is one of my favorite. You know, man, we were talking before we came on air. We are so aligned in so many ways. Some of the topics I cover on the show to some people are kind of going, how has that got anything to do with innovation? I'm like going everything because of things like critical thinking. And when I read your book, it did so much service to so many of those topics on the show and then all culminated and came together at the very end to ultimately bring us this new revolution in education. It, it was absolutely fascinating. Maybe we'll say a little bit about that, Nadav, about the depth of research and breadth of research that you've done for this book. I mean, it, it's a lot of life experience. And, uh, you know, I started as a software engineer in Silicon Valley. I was actually on site at Netscape working for digital equipment. And then I transitioned into education. And I just happened to be standing there at this intersection of technology coming on one side and education falling apart on the other. Um, and then I started noticing that there's actually something happening that the future, the digital economy, actually the revolution or the renaissance will happen from education because it's an attention economy. Um, our attention, how we use our attention, how citizens use their attention will determine how effective they are in a digital economy. So I just happened to be standing there to see this. Um, it actually happened to me the first time in an executive leadership training, and they kept talking about being a learner. And, and, and I was wondering how I ended up at learning when I thought I was going into business. Um, and then I started noticing that being a learner actually was discouraged in education, right, when it's compliance driven and, uh, and that our executives are being trained to be learners. And so something started to um, open up inside me and wondering where is this convergence of uh, profit making, profit taking and education and um, what does it have to do with being a high school principal, which is what I was and how does that impact my students as they graduate? Um, and so it's, you know, I, I, I'm a terrible reader. Unlike yourself, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I have a learning disability with my reading. So it's it was listening to a lot of people like you who educated me. Um, and so most of my research was just uh, was just from people like you, frankly. I'm honored and I learned so much from your book. So we helped each other out here. And uh, I wanted to talk about that. So one of the great in maximums of innovation is innovation happens at the intersections. And you mentioned there the intersections of so many much of your background, there were so many different aspects, but also that part of being the learner. And I wanted to bring that back to something that's really interesting, which is 
something that you talk about in the book, and I highly recommend the book for people who want to learn about how we got to where we are. So the subtitle is how we get there. But also you bring us on a journey about how we got to where we were. And actually, that's really interesting, because this idea that you mentioned there briefly, is that being a learner is actually not encouraged, it's discouraged. So how about we talk a little bit about that, because this is interesting for people, because then we'll actually go, well, this is where we were, where are we going next? And so let me just start where we're going next is actually back to ancient traditions of oral, you know, oral traditions where before we started pen and paper before um, the industrial revolution happened. And so in the 1850s, um, uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte was this uh, guy in Germany, let me just read a quote of his, I think this captures so much. Um, he said, education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils are thus schooled, they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Right. And so this is the ethos that was brought back to the committee of 10 and the robber baron said, hey, we need robots for our factories, frankly. And so this sounds like a great program. And that's when our modern modern high schools were born in that model um, with the committee of 10. So that is really how our modern high and and you know we we might shake our heads at that now at how inhumane it is but we needed robots right we did we needed somebody to you know run these factories to do the accounting we um you know the british empire uh you know managed the, their empire all over the world with paper ledgers and somebody needed to be able to keep that in different countries and have it be standardized so that standardization brought us very far and brought us a lot of um literacy and math but today in a digital economy that's now bankrupt do you know what it reminded me of Nadav was uh, the whole idea of the QWERTY keyboard that has persisted, and it was designed for a typewriter, not for an actual computer. And I saw this parallel between that and the education system that the whole idea of the QWERTY keyboard was designed to slow us down so people wouldn't get carpal tunnel syndrome. So the the keys wouldn't jam. Yet, that persists on our keyboards that that's not a problem anymore. And they're actually designed to slow us down. And I thought about actually, that's what's happened with the education system as well. It's fit for an age that's gone past, and actually not fit for the age we're gone in, we're already in, let alone where we're going in the future. But I, I thought we'd start with the end of mind. And you mentioned this towards the end of the book, you mentioned about the whole idea of the best businesses are businesses that give a North Star for their, their people. So they can actually use critical evaluation and critical thinking in order to get there. So they're not told what to do. And you start the book with an elevation of 30,000 feet, your view of the world that we're graduating into, and then you dive into the narrows of economic and historical context informed by a clear view of digital economy and a detailed understanding of the platform based business unit and then you put it all together in the final section of the book beautifully. But I thought Nadav, we'd start with the vision. And I'll just quote this to warm you up here a little bit, because I love what you say here. The book makes clear who controls the metrics controls the world. Standardized tests have been destroying schools and students in the name of learning and education. The digital age can enable large scale urban schooling without mass standardization. Your vision is one where learning can be accounted and registered on a blockchain ledger. Learning records and credits that are indexes of actual value can rebuild trust in the social mechanisms of intergenerational transmission and education. Human capital can be created and understood in a fundamentally new way, and teaching, learning and community can be preserved 
by digital technologies rather than destroyed by them, as is happening now with the screenification of everything. How about that for a way to warm you up? And perhaps let's start with the end in mind where we're going and then we'll get there. So um, the book was the beginning of a journey that now is an app. We have a team developing an app um, it, in the book I call DNA Credits. Now in reality, it's called High School Credit or High School Credit. Um, so that's where we're going. It's an app. Now the app is quite simple. It's uh, it's focused on educational data. Um, so it's it's basically a transcript app, right? What we're doing is decentralizing the high school transcript. Um, we're focusing just on the work of 11th and 12th graders with the assumption that if we realign incentives for 11th and 12th graders from evaluating them with standardized tests to evaluating them based on um, kind of gold standard credits, which are project-based, we actually changed the ecosystem from pre-K all the way through 10th grade, but just focusing on this high leverage point of 11th and 12th grade students. And what that causes kind of as an accidental byproduct is our high schools then become the centers of media um, production. So the hyper-local media market, which right now is a vacuum waiting to be filled, high school students can fill it telling local stories, um, or if it's math and science content, they would be creating content kind of like Khan Academy, if you know what that is, but where the videos are made by students and for students. Um, so the whole platform is based on um, segments of academic content, media, 10-minute segments of academic media that are minted into NFTs. And so the high school transcript just then becomes a wallet of these non-transferable NFTs. Um, so that's where we're going. And that's, um, and, you know, early next year, we'll have an app for people to play with. Um, but that's, yeah, so that's the end in mind. Okay, well, I wanted to get that in there. Because unfortunately, like you talk about in the book, attention is the currency of a digital economy. And for many people, and I get this all the time, by the way, from the show, is that many people kind of go, will you do a shorter version? And I'm kind of going, but by removing essential pieces of the jigsaw, you actually don't get the full picture. And and actually, I kind of think it's important to be able to train our attention as do you and as do you for the future of education and for our children in the future as well. They need to actually have this attention, they need to have critical thinking as well. But we'll get there in time. But I wanted to make sure for those people who might tune out that they know what the vision is, and perhaps they might find ways to collaborate or actually spread that vision somewhere else in the world. So that's the end goal. Let's build how you do get there in the book, because you say digital economies are built on a combination of abstraction and crowdsourcing. Without understanding this, we cannot understand the digital economy, nor prepare our high school graduates to pursue freedom in a digital age. I thought this was really interesting. So perhaps you'll bring us through that journey. What's happened in the digital economy is we're able to take, so let's just take it a concrete example, I think are the best way. Um, Airbnb, right? We've now are we're willing to hand our keys over to strangers. So what happened that allowed us to do that? Well, we took pictures of our apartments. So we abstracted them, made them digital, posted them on a website where people could browse them. And then there's this digital trust that was created through user reviews, through you know stars and rankings, and more recently through blockchain, so that we can allow a, a platform, um, digital platform, you know, a network of computers to um, facilitate trust among members of a community, rather than turning to governments or corporations. And in my eye, big government and big corporations are the same thing today. They've kind of merged. So I don't get the difference between Republicans and Democrats in America, because I think it's frankly the same thing. It's the same people controlling things. Um, and so what this movement is that we're seeing in digital platforms 
is unbundling, things getting pulled apart and pushed toward the edges where the information is. And it's a very humanistic change. Um, just to give you an example, David Glasser and Jerome Singer in 1972 did this amazing study where they put two groups of people in a room and they gave them puzzles to work on and proofreading to do. And there was really loud noise. And have you heard the study? It's, it, I, it's one of I, I read it in your book. I read it in your yeah. book. Yeah. So there are these loud noises, um, like in the hallway, right outside the room that are very distracting. And one group was just left alone to do the work with this loud noise. The other group was given a button. And if they push the button, the noise would turn off. They would, the people, the workers in the hallway would get the, get the message. They need to stop for a while. The second group solved five times as many puzzles and made many fewer proofreading errors, but they never pushed the button. They just had the button there. And so knowing that it was there was all that mattered. And what that is, is that when young, when people, not just young people, when people are given that authority, when it's, when it comes out to the edges where the workers are given the authority to do work rather than just a job where you punch in and punch out and you're told what to do. Um, something happens that is more effective, more efficient than the top-down um, model. And, and Jeff Bezos runs all of Amazon this way. He has a two-pizza rule, like teams can't be bigger than what can be fed with two pizzas, right? So this unbundling of the world as things get pushed out to the edges, right now what that looks like is that 40% of American workers today are um, temporary or part-time, right? They're contractors. So it's right now it's hurting our workers. Um, the jobs created from 20, 2005, 2015, 94% of them were contractor temporary. So we're moving toward this place where jobs end and it's on us using one of these platforms to do work. If we can, so this can go two ways. This can go toward totalitarianism because CEOs don't have elections, right? And so if it's if the next um, superpower is Facebook and they have their own currency and they have an economy bigger than any country, it, that's totalitarianism because you know he doesn't. He's going to control everything. Zuckerberg gets to control everything. Open source, on the other hand, that makes things transparent, allows us to um, take in a different direction where there's a surveillance rather than a surveillance, and um, you know, and, and a community of interested parties can get together. Now, I don't know which way it's going to go, but I know that education is going to play a critical role in educating our young people as to the options and um, how they can make money and be successful while preserving democracy i think it's so important and and what you mentioned there as well about you know I, I i read about the whole idea of you know carnegie in the in america for example supporting education the whole idea was well we we want there was a there was a selfishness there as well because they wanted to prepare people for factory workers of the future and then recently i don't know if you saw i, I think i sent it to you scott galloway former guest of the show he said that he would rather give his children whiskey and cannabis than give them Instagram because of the addictive nature of those type of tools. And I thought about, well, it's kind of the same thing in, in a, if, if you have these major corporations running the world because their main currency is attention. You, you nailed it. In the modern digital economy, the scarcity is no longer capital like factories and materials. The scarcity is human attention. That is the scarcity that we're competing over. And so if one person can aggregate people's attention and control it, then they can control people's choices and they can subvert democracy and they can control economics, right? And so the complexity of the individual consumer or citizen, you know, how much we associate with different types of groups you know, whether it's through sports teams or books we read or people we know, 
um, the harder it is to put us in buckets and control us, right? The the more we conform to the kind of we self-conform to stereotypes, the easier it is to manipulate us and put us into buckets that then they can control our, our thinking and then control our choices. So that's absolutely the 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 fight that's happening now. I think there are two wars coming in a sense. Um and one is about currency, currency wars, and one is about attention, and they're very much related. Um, but it's exactly right. We are now fighting over human attention as the resource um, rather than physical resources. And that has some upside, too, because when it's ideas, like ideas economy and human attention, um, competition isn't as valuable as collaboration, right? If I have a language that I've invented, well, it's not very useful unless I share it with people. And that's really what um, these new forms of capital, like social capital, it's creating a language, it's creating, um, getting down to what attracts people's attention. New forms of money will really be based on what humans find interesting and what we give our attention to. We'll come back to attention. We'll come back to that really important last chapter, the second last chapter as well about in-group and out-group bias. That's so important for all of this as well. And and I thought about the serendipity as well. I don't know if you heard the episode a few weeks ago, Elliot Aronson one of the leaders of this, it was absolutely mad, magical stuff. And you I, I must send it to you because we talk also about his concept of the jigsaw classroom as well, which is just beautiful. But uh, let's come back to the other part that you said about the currency. Because I really found your book really educational for me about the way you described how we got to currency in the very first place before we go on to then digital currencies and blockchains, because I know for many listeners to the show, many viewers of the show, they often email me kind of go, I don't have a clue what crypto is about. I don't have a clue about digital currencies. And you do a brilliant job of describing that. But I thought we should explain blockchain. And I thought we should explain a little bit about the abstraction of fiat currencies in the first place and how we actually got to those currencies right back to Nixon, if you wouldn't mind bringing us through that journey, which you do brilliantly in the book. It's, it's funny, people think that blockchain has to do with digitizing money, but money was digitized a long time ago, even before computers, when Diners Club created the credit card, or frankly, when local stores give store credit, you end up just creating a ledger of who owes what, um, and then money isn't in the, the gold coins that were transacted. Um, money then starts just becoming a ledger of account. And, and it actually turns out that if we go back as early as we have any recorded human communication of any kind, what we were first keeping track of is who owes who, you know, who owes what to whom. So money is a form of abstraction that abstracts our labor into some unit that we can transact so we don't have to barter. Um, and then in the, uh, you know, so initially it was gold, um, in, in the Western cultures was something that uh, ended up being uh, the main form of money. Um, and over the past uh, 150 years, we've slowly shifted to paper um, with fiat currency, where you know the US government in um, Roosevelt, because of uh, financial crisis there, couldn't issue, couldn't, redeem, couldn't um, have the dollar redeem, be redeemed for gold. And then Nixon, because of the Vietnam War, also the same problem. And he just said, hey, now it's just these paper bills and they have their own value because I said so. That's what fiat means, just I said so. Um, and then since then, the, the US dollar has become in itself um, considered just because it's kind of a group illusion. We decide it has value and so it has. And now we're in this transition where these blockchains, um, where these distributed communities are coming together and defining money. And so they're not digitizing, but what they've done is created a ledger that instead of being controlled by a centralized authority, the banks, the governments, the big corporations, instead of asking them 
to manage uh, relationships between us, right? So we can trust each other to transact. We can trust that the money has value. What Bitcoin really, it's really Bitcoin has done is created a totally transparent ledger that anybody can view and that has copies all over the world so that anybody anywhere can leverage the computer system to trust transactions between each other without having to trust one player who, if you give one player control of money, they're going to, you know, they have a printing press of money. And so that's what the government has had. And of course, every politician is going to print money because they have their own pet project. You know, it's, it, how, how do you resist the, um, you know, control of the printing press of money? And so all Bitcoin has done is say, we're no longer going to give one person control of that. What we're going to do is create something that um, the rules are set in advance and with open source, anybody can read the rules. And then we're going to agree to these rules. And with those rules in place, we can all have a money system that isn't controlled by any one person. So that's really all the technology is. And it's super simple. It's just a ledger. This account has this much in it. That's really all that all that we're doing here. They call they have these fancy words, triple entry accounting or all these things. But it's really just a way to have a ledger of accounts that you know that nobody other than you can get in there and transfer money from your account to somebody else's. Nobody else has control of that. Um, in our current system, when you your money is kept at a bank and money, there, I go into the, in the book in a lot more depth that money is actually a, a measure of debt. The US dollar is actually an issuance of debt. Um, Bitcoin is not. You actually hold the Bitcoin yourself because you control that account. You don't give it to a bank or some corporation to control for you. So you have control of it. Um, and that is a fundamental change to to money, as simple as it is. And one of the things that you said there I found was interesting. So FDR asked for all the gold. So give me all the gold, we'll put it in the bank and we'll give you back these. And and I, actually, that's kind of like a token to go, this is how much you have. This is a tokenized version of actual physical gold. And it was all paper based. But what I found interesting was then later on in the book, you talk about, well, for example, the spending on military, that if you look actually at the numbers, the the money printed versus the money in circulation, there's often huge discrepancies that you talked about there. And this is one of the big problems. Yeah. So when when you control the money printer, when you need to pump money into the economy, when the Fed says we need more money in the economy to pump to, you know, to stimulate the economy the way they've been doing um, recently in particular, it's easier to, in, until we had digital technology, it was always easier to give to big contractors. And the military industrial complex was the biggest. So when they had to pump money in the economy, it would go through military contracts primarily. And what that's caused before when it was gold and you that you couldn't print more money unless you had more gold. And that was something that, you know, you had to secure. With fiat currency, we started doing these projects um, trillion dollar airplanes that were never used, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars to invent new military technology that literally was grounded immediately after it was created, just to spend money and you know just to kind of drive the economy. And so what we're what we're talking about is the industrial age. We had this thing called the jobs loop, right? You have a job to make money, to buy stuff, to make jobs, to, right? And so spending money was kind of patriotic. And having a job was just to buy stuff to make more jobs. And we wanted that loop to continue. In the, in the digitized world, we have an opamine dopioid cycle, uh, opioid dopamine cycle, right? Which is really the cycle of how a baby learns how to walk. They try something out, they get feedback. So the cycle is really take an action, get feedback. And so that so that shift from having to make money, having to spend, having to buy stuff and that physical, when physical stuff is involved, where we have to just generate more stuff to make more jobs, when attention is what we're fighting over, 
what we're looking at is how to trigger that dopamine hit in, in our brains. That dopamine hit, the way it's designed, the way our brains was designed, that, that is a reward for when we learn something new, right? You can take drugs and do things to get that reward, but it's really when a baby first stands up and feels that balance, that's what drives them to keep learning. So that's one of the reasons that education is really the heart of the digital economy is because we want to learn how to trigger that dopamine cycle ourselves. And that only happens through learning new things, right? And learning new things in social media, learning wherever you're, wherever you're trying things and getting feedback and trying to adjust to learn the algorithm to get more likes um, or wherever it is, it's a learning cycle. Um, so the, I don't know, sorry, I don't know how we got here. That <laughs> I told you, man, we, we live in rabbit holes. I'll come back to that because that, that dopamine cycle, that loop is so important. It's something I, I tell my kids, I tell them like no screen time is invented equal, like as in, so if they're watching crappy shows on YouTube that are really, really short, I explained to them actually what you're doing there is burning up your dopamine receptors, because you're getting these short term hits. It's not the same as watching a science program or watching a longer term show. I was explaining this to my older son recently, because I, I listen when I listen to music, I listen to long abstracted pieces. And what I was thinking about is that we actually live in the world of the radio edit, and the radio edit is designed to have a short three minute version, so they can play more, more songs in the radio and get more hits, you know, essentially, and, and I was like, kind of go, well, that's the unfortunate part of the world. And this goes back to what I said at the start about shorter shows versus longer shows, etc. It's it's such a problem, actually, for society. Every time is actually a difference for me between producing and consuming is the next level. If they're using the screen to create videos or to create music, that's really the that's where you're starting to trigger that learning cycle and get those rushes. You won't get a rush no matter what you're listening to. If you're passively consuming, you're not going to get that same rush as if you then take what you learned or if you're consume, you know, if you're consuming media because you're trying to create something or make a podcast, it's in the creation that um, the value comes. Yeah, and like you said, actually, in the book, I find this hugely and actually the approach towards teaching. So I, I lecture in college, and I, you know, a lot of times lecturers will go, Oh, have to have to correct 100 essays. And I had changed my approach towards those corrections. And I was like, oh, well, actually, now I have all these different perspectives on something that I know. And and I, I encourage the, the kids that you know, their mid 20s, 30s, to actually look in places that I haven't taught them about and actually come back to me and include story and include creativity in it. And I get these beautiful perspectives on something that I would have known, but I kind of know it from my perspective. And it totally changes. And it links to something you say, which is one of the best ways to learn is to teach and to learn to teach is to learn. It's the same thing. It's a loop. That's the inversion of the classroom that I talk about in my book. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we'll we'll go there. We'll we, we'll go there, and then we'll come back to the to the track, which is where just for everybody out there, what we're on is actually talking about how we get to blockchain and how blockchain then connects to the DNA credits, which is this credits yeah. towards education. Let's so let's jump there. So the inversion of the classroom. You know that you had a guest on. Um, what was maybe it was a social animal with Elliot Aronson. Oh, I'm not yeah, sure that yeah. he was talking about initiation rather than right, kind of the, the power of initiation um, for uh, how we perceive things, right? That if you go through some initiation. So if we're going to talk about an inverted high school credit, you know, in a traditional credit, you 
do a bunch of whatever, and then you cram for a test, and then you know you're evaluated based on you know a little bit of time at the end. The inverted credit is is, is inverted. First, you cram for the test and cover a bunch of content to get a breadth of the space, right? And so that's the content layer. The content layer is just the beginning of learning, right? That's the you know you know you're given a bunch of resources and you have to kind of learn the lay of the land. Then the next step is to go into planning and then into production of creating something using that content. If you the content is like the building blocks, if you don't then use those building blocks in some way, that's not in-depth learning. And so the content is the is the end of the old industrial system of education. The content is the beginning of a create of if we're creating an, a system of education where we create we're having um, teaching people to be creators rather than consumers because those are the ones that are going to eat everybody's lunch. Um, so if you're going to be a content creator, the first level is content. The second layer is planning. And then the third layer is production. And so that's um, the invert and why I referenced that other show. The, what's, what's important here is instead of a high stakes evaluation at the end, what makes a difference is a high stakes entry at the beginning, right? So if you put a screen that students cannot enter into the work without having studied the content, and that lets them initiate the learning that gives them the right to participate in the platform and to earn a credit, kind of that's the, the table stakes, they've already invested and their investment is what gives the platform value. And so that um, inverted model, we first have students invest with a Z, what we call a zero credit, that's the initiation. And because they have to do that work for no credit, that gets them into the platform. And each credit, they have to then do that initial work to show that they're serious, right? And it's the same way if you look at it like any journalism team. They don't let everybody participate. And then the good one, the bad ones fail. Sorry, we're not going to use your content. The good ones, they screen people at the beginning and they try to hire the right people, right? And so that's really how um, all of these decentralized platforms are going to work. You're going to be your own brand and you have to get in the door, get the job. And then doing the job isn't where the evaluation is. It was to get in the door and actually you know, land the contract. That, that is where things happen. Um, and so that's the inverted uh, credit model. And it's really based on a focus on skills. If we're not focusing on content and teaching, you know, evaluating kids on being able to regurgitate information, what we're focusing on is skills. And so the students think about, and so skills, it's like going to the gym, you have to practice. So if a skill that we're looking at in a classroom is like inferring a theme from evidence, let's say, right? That's a skill, learning how to read something and pulling out the theme, kind of reading between the lines using inference. Well, you have to be able to think about um, understanding the content first. Do you understand the reading? And you can select what are the key passages and you can think about literary elements that are used, right? So there are sub-skills. And so the way we work is we have students then break down the sub-skills into a skill that they want to practice, but they're defining that sub-skill themselves. We don't give it to them. And during the production of their work, they're showing practice, whether it's um, active listening, they choose a few skills that they're going to practice over and over in the production of their content to develop actual skills. So it's like going to the gym. We want to see with multiple revisions that they're you know, lifting the weights and actually practicing active listening and, and getting to know the sub skills and getting kind of um, into the weeds of what it's like to do the learning rather than to just, um, you know, the current model is you kind of pour stuff into the kids and then you measure what comes out. That's not learning, right? What we want to do is kindle the flame of curiosity and kindle that flame of love of learning that's always there for when we're a baby that schools right now kill. So the inverted model focuses on the interest of the young person is student-centered and the learning comes from the student outward rather than from the teacher pouring over the student. I love it, man. It reminds me of the, I think it was Plutarch, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be ignited or fire to be kindled. 
It's absolutely the way. You've even pointed out that the word education, you'll have to tell me because you're the etymologist. The word education, I think, is right is to to elicit or to... Educe, yeah. It's it's, it's the source of it. Actually, I I learned that from the brilliant D. Hawk, which if you haven't heard it, by the way, seven-part series with him. And he told me, actually, on our very first call before we even started recording, he told me about the source of the word or the the root of the word education is educed to draw out what's already in people. I think that's just a beautiful, to draw out their spirit, essentially, you know, and um, I, I, I have huge amount of empathy, and, and as do you, for how we got there. But it's just that, you know, this this thing is no longer fit for the pur- purpose today, yet, let alone where we're going tomorrow. So um, anyway, I'm going to try and bring us back, Nadav, to, to, the, <laughs> to, the, tra- to the train track. I, the way I kind of visualized this was like, we're on, we're on this train track, and then there's all these kind of side shoots here and there. And I was like, going, I'm not going to be able to maintain myself to stay on the track. But I'm going to bring us back to the track. And I, I just wanted to do that um, to kind of to, to bring it back to education like you do the whole time. But there's other parts we need to understand before we can piece together all the pieces as you do at the end of the book. I'm going to bring us back to currency and blockchain and where you were talking about, for example, inflation. And you said our trust in government's promise that paper dollars are valuable has remained despite the fact that the promised value has dwindled year after year as more and more money has been printed by successive governments hungry for cash. Someone who saved $100 in a bank in 1971 would have an equivalent purchasing power of about $15 today. And then you then you quantify it as follows. You say, if you could buy 2,300 eggs with $100 in 1971, today you would only be able to buy 336 eggs with that same $100. The bold action of issuing paper untethered from physical limitations with private finance backed by government ushered in an age where abstract information was beginning to have a value unto itself. Numbers printed on dollar bills gained a value of their own. No gold, no shares, no pork bellies, just indelible ink on fancy paper and on a government's promise. The road to an information revolution that paved was paved as an unintended consequence of the budget deficits faced by FDR and Nixon. And this is how greed drove innovation. And I thought that was a great way to tee us up for where we came from, and then the interface going into the age of and the birth of Bitcoin. But I'm kind of a fan of greed. Um, I think it's one of these basic human um, mechanisms that drives us and that if we pretend it doesn't exist or um, you know hate it, we uh, lose a lot of power in the world. I think that if we can harness it, um, it, uh, it can drive us in directions. Now, um, if we let it run rampant without any kind of, if we're, if we're not intentional about how we direct uh, incentives, really what we're talking about is incentives, um, it, it, it goes awry and we uh, end up doing very bad things. But I think the way we're built as social creatures is to care for each other as long as everybody else does the same, right? Those multipolar traps. So um, greed led us to, you know, it's kind of that cat out of the bag thing. Greed led things to more and more abstraction so that people could make more and more money. But as you abstract things, it also becomes more and more available to the common man. And so the banks thought they were being clever by, um, or the government thought they were being clever by, you know, making this fiat currency. But now we find it ourselves at a place where um, individual, you know, individuals are making 
uh, money because it's so abstract that that anybody with strong encryption um, can compete with banks because they can actually do the encryption better than the banks can and secure money better than the, the government can. So it's a really fascinating thing how greed drives innovation. And then that innovation can actually lead to challenging that greed and making it better for the common man. That's not, I'm not, um, I don't think that's how it goes by default. I think it it takes intentional planning um, and education, frankly, I think that's where it's going to be at. If we educate our young people to um, to harness that, we have a chance. But uh, otherwise, that that greed can centralize and centralize and centralize until you know we're all being controlled by Big Brother. So let's bring it back to Bitcoin then as well, because this understanding of Bitcoin and the understanding of blockchain is essential to understand the DNA credits. And you say here, the revolution that began with the birth of Bitcoin is not about money going digital. And as you said earlier, that happened years ago with diners, cards, credit cards, etc. But it's about decentralization and related network effects coming to money as centralized government faces competition by an onerous shared alternative, like you mentioned, those people who have great encryption. And you said the birth of a digital economy was started by banks to reduce their operating costs and had subsequent unintended consequence, which in aggregate give us the unique opportunities of the academic credit system that you advocate in this book. Maybe now is it a departure to actually talk about that a little bit. So, right, so we're talking about we used to have to have a, a centralized authority to m- mitigate um, transactions between us at the edges. We, we needed to count on them and that we didn't have any other option. But now with computer networks, we can have the computers um, objectively implement what we tell them to do with open source code. um, And then we can interact with each other without the middleman. That's what we're talking about. Um, And so Bitcoin is the first um, kind of proof of concept. We see that actually works. But since Bitcoin, things like NFTs have been born, which is, I think, really the um, the technology that's most applicable to uh, the high school credits, but NFTs are built on that same blockchain technology. So that blockchain technology, again, all it's done is have the computers mitigate transactions between people rather than a central authority so that people can transact directly with each other rather than having to go through a middleman to trust to um, you know, ensure fairness. Um, so that's really all that the blockchain has done is shown us that it's possible to use a computer network to interact economically with each other without using banks and governments. Um, If you take that to the education level, the high school transcript, it's the same thing. Each politician prints more credits because they want graduation rates to go up. So they issue just like printing dollars. They print cheaper and cheaper credits. And now the high school transcript is totally broken because it has no value. You can can get a high school transcript at some schools in America without knowing how to read. So unless your transcript has that fancy school name on it that everybody recognizes, they know that transcript has value. The transcript itself, a priori, cannot be assumed to represent any learning. And so then we turn to standardized tests because we do need good educational data. We need to hold our schools accountable. We need to know which schools are doing good work. So um, by so then if we apply that same decentralization to the academic transcript, instead of the government issuing and us trusting the government to issue credits, which we they've now, you know, because politicians are controlling it, their incentives, they're actually literally incentivized to devalue the credits so that they can value, so that they can look better for their voters. What we're doing is taking a community of educators who aren't focused on politics, but who are focused on the quality of student work being submitted to a platform. And so the we use the computer platform to mitigate and ensure the quality of content coming on. 
um, and then we don't need the centralized authority. We don't need the government um, or, frankly, the textbook authors or anybody else to um, to control what is a high school credit. And so that's the um, kind of the application of the blockchain technology, the ledger of accounts of who owns what in an academic setting. It's uh, which students have which credits. And so we're putting that in the hands of a community of educators rather than the politicians. And um, that makes something possible. If there's an, a transcript app like the one we're developing, you no longer need to, um, you know, right now you need to go to the right elementary school to go to the right middle school to get into the right high school because the colleges only respect that transcript. And now a student can turn at 16 who hasn't been academic and suddenly produce content in their 11th and 12th grade and be on an equal playing field with any student from any school and apply to the same universities or jobs. So we're democratizing access to education by taking the measure, the data, educational data, and putting it in the hands of educators, distributed educators in the you know, kind of at the edges of the of the system, rather than counting on the centralized authorities that have the reverse incentives, perverse incentives, um, because they control the printing of credits. I'm going to come back to that as well, because you talk about some of the the biases and some of the natural things that happen through upheaval and one of the concepts you share is the prevalence induced concept change. And you say here, understanding our inability to even recognize change helps us understand the stubborn nature of the education system, which is gradually becoming more corporate with the onslaught of charter schools, lining up kids and training them to look at the teacher and respond to prompts in a uniform manner. We can be patient with these developments as we recognize our own difficulty to shift perspectives when something we hold dear is challenged. Our brains convince us that we know more than evidence actually suggests. You know, you think about somebody who made a, a lot of money for the first part of their career, and now they have money and they need to figure out what to do with it, right? They need to shift from learning how to make money to learning how to build relationships and have meaningful experiences. And it's um, what they're going to do is just go keep going back to making money because that's what they know, right? You, it's that that streetlight effect. You know, the guy's looking for his keys, and somebody comes over to help him, and he says, "Oh, you lost your keys. Let me help you." And he says, "Oh, did you lose your keys here? No, I lost them over there in the park." Well, why are you looking here? Well, there's light here. The park, the park is dark, right? So we look where there's light. We look where we have evidence. We look where we have experience, and we tend to drive looking in the rearview mirror economically. Our governments do, um, and so that tendency to to refer back to the past is how our brains work. It's it's a normal part of how we survive in the world and, and deal with all the data that's coming in. But when there's rapid change, as there is right now, that breaks down. And so in education, we start turning toward um, better and better versions of industrial schooling and more control and more top-down um, rather than turning to the students and really getting into the soil of their thinking and and how we can plant seeds in that soil, we try to you know put on chemicals to make their thinking you know right that kind of using the uh, metaphor of of um, farming, you know so it's natural for us to want to go back to what's familiar and to look to the past for answers, but really we need to start looking at recent past for some indication of where we're going rather than the industrial past, and that's very 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 difficult to do. Um, and it's going to cause a breaking point because our kids know that what they're learning in school is irrelevant. And so now we're just warehousing kids. We're just trying to keep in the building. We have guards in the halls. Um, you know, it, we have the, we use the same doors in schools that we do in prisons and you do time in school. That's how you get a degree now is you just do time. Right. And so that system is eventually going to totally fall apart if we aren't able to 
look forward and start realizing that these new forms of capital that are being formed relate to new forms of learning where students are producing rather than consuming, where it's the student interest that matters more than the um, than what the teacher finds interesting. Um, so it's still academic in nature, right? We still focus on the academic skills. The teachers define what the skills are being evaluated on, but the students can explore their interests a little more. And when they go home to do homework, it's answering questions that they asked rather than answering questions that the teacher asked them. And that shift is a very difficult shift, but for edu- there are so many true educators that have been chased out of education because they were they were forced to teach to a test, and they know that education is eliciting from the students. So many people that go into education, it's actually their natural um, mode is to educate, is to elicit from the students, is to listen more than to speak, and to listen in a way that you bring out the best in the future of students. And so those educators are going to do well and find this very easy, this transition, but educators who kind of um, their bread and butter is teaching to a test are going to find the transition quite difficult. Well, it's interesting you say that, Nadav. I, I like you, I know you've done this. You, you know, one of the things that happened to me with uh, lecturing is, uh, you know, even the word lecturing, I, I don't like that as a, as a word. It's kind of more like kindling, you know, kindling the imagination, etc. But one of the things I found was the majority of the students, and, and there's a bit of a geographical thing here as well. Most of the students that attend my lectures are from all over the world. And for the majority, they'll find it fascinating. They'll say this, that was great. It's best lecturing I've had, etc. But some will come to me and kind of go, or, or they won't, won't even come to me. And they'll complain. And they'll kind of go, I didn't f- feel I got a concrete output from that. And the, the concept I always think of is that w- education should be about connecting dots, not collecting dots. And they feel that they haven't collected anything from it. So while there's a shift that's needed from the from the teacher to no longer be the sage on the stage, there's also a shift that's needed from the student to actually receive the information differently and see actually there's been a shift in how they're taught. What, what's your thoughts on that? Like I said, I have trouble reading. But when I was researching the book, I could devour books for the first time probably in my life. I could devour books with um, with no problem because I knew what I was looking for. I was looking for something specific. I had a context, I had a project. I was working on this book. And so it's the same thing when the context is that students are going to have to produce something at the end and that you have that initial entry for them to show that they are bought into producing this thing. That's critical is that initiation piece that they get in there and that they know it's on them that they're going to have to produce something to get the credit. That gives a context that they listen to your lecture. They listen to the information given because they're looking to collect for a specific purpose to then go out to a political rally and interview people or whatever it is they're doing with their podcast or video. So without the context of project-based learning, right, without the, without the um, end goal, if they haven't seen young people going out into the field and having the freedom to go interview people and to explore and to, you know, and to enjoy their learning in the real world and to connect it. Um, if they, if they are used to just sitting in a classroom and getting credit for regurgitating, you're, you're absolutely right. Students have gotten very good at that. And there's a big fight here because a lot of students are like, Hey, you're pulling the rug out from under us. We've learned how to do this. We know how to get the good scores. What are you doing? Um, but what they want is good data. They want good, fair data that they know, you know, that it's very clear to them how to do well on. And then they'll do well. Those students will do well on this as well. But we have to make it very clear what's expected at the end um, and, and what data we're collecting to evaluate you. Without that clarity, it gets confusing. 
But with that clarity, project-based learning has been around way before this industrial stuff. It's ancient stuff. I grew up in the Waldorf schools and Rudolf Steiner's ideas about learning um, right, predate all this stuff. So we're going back to ancient traditions of learning, and those will come very naturally and will grow very naturally for us. But the context is critical. The context in the classroom is so critical. And if right now everyone is asking, will this be on the test? That is the only question that anybody asks. And I'm not talking about students. I'm talking about teachers, too, because that's how they're evaluating. Is this going to be on the state test? Right? Is this going to be? Everybody's asking, is this going to be on the test? And that's what drives education. That is the incentive structure that drives education. So we need to change the incentives so that everybody's asking, is this going to help the student make a good work product? Right? And when that's what you're asking, that change in context makes everything easier. Now, that shift in context is challenging. In particular, I work at um, in very low-income schools. I work with students that have been kicked out of other schools. That's kind of my bread and butter. So it's students that have been failed by the current system that have gotten incarcerated that whatever has happened to them they aren't they don't consider themselves academic and so for them in their culture they um, it's very hard for them to make the transition from the old model to the new model because they see school as a certain way and it's let them down this certain way but that trauma you kind of um you know it's, that's what is familiar and so but whenever one of the students experiences producing something for the first time then they become unstoppable. And so, you know, one student I can think of um, really struggled, cursed me out, was violent, was really a tr troubled student. And then he discovered welding and he loved welding. He learned math after that, like everything in the context of becoming a welder was no problem. He knew where he wanted to get. And it's that, you know, the end in mind. So it's, there's a, there's a transition here and it has to come from the students first. It has to come. That's why I'm saying you have to have that the high stakes has to be the beginning at entry to get onto the platform to earn these credits. There has to be a big entry to show that students get what this is about and get why this is important and get the attention economy. They have to get those basics to buy in. If you don't get the students to buy in from the front end, it's impossible for teachers to force project-based learning down from the top down. It just doesn't work. Beautifully articulated, man. I was thinking there about like, so the importance there for me doing the lecturing is actually upfront how I contextualize everything because then they have something, they have a vision onto which to stick the information that's relevant towards their vision or if they have an essay to do or a project to do and I articulate that first and then give the content, then they kind of go, oh, I see how that's relevant, etc. But I thought about how interesting that is, that inversion in the classroom is also the inversion that is required in the workplace. The whole idea is you're not just a cog in the wheel. You're actually, here's the bigger picture, and here's the bigger picture for you. Maybe we'll say a word on that because you also talk about this, this, this inversion in the workplace. Like I shared before, jobs are gone, right? We're not creating jobs anymore where you punch in, punch out, somebody tells you what to do. Um, even a truck driver um, in the future is going to raise the money to own a rig and then use an app to deploy their rig. And it could be a driver's rig, right? They could be at home driving from the house or managing it, but they are going to have to be these decentralized small players. But if you have a bunch of small players owning individual rigs, you could be much more agile, right? And much more competitive against these big centralized organizations that have empty factory space and wasted resources and fax machines. So there's an opportunity for the individual player to compete against and take down these big players. But the downside is that, you know, what, what did, um, was the Jay-Z that I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman, right? So we are our own business. 
And that's that's the shift from being the businessman in the suit to not worrying about that suit and that top-down hierarchy in the politics, but learning how to get work done. And that really is about learning how to focus our attention. So mindfulness and all these practices, how do you take your attention and produce a result for whoever is your client? Um, and, and that's what we need to be teaching our students. And right now we're teaching them how to sit down and shut up, you know? Uh, lovely, man. I, I so agree, by the way. I think the whole idea of, and it's one of the, the undertones of this show is, is actually empowering people through information to think about the gig economy and think about how where they fit in that gig economy and think also about how you can use all these open source tools and in the future artificial intelligence to empower that you know you mentioned the truck drivers truck drivers when people talk about truck drivers they go oh well they'll be they'll be replaced by artificial intelligence you go well not quite they can use the artificial intelligence to actually empower themselves to really be valuable in that world. It could go either way. I think it's it's really up in the air. And I think that's why education right now is, um, this is the revolution, right? This is the peaceful revolution is to educate our young people in all this, so that they understand how their attention is being captured, so that they understand the opportunity to take down the big dominant players. But if they don't understand that, um, the, the network effects tend to centralize um, and so you can have these kind of Frankenstein, half centralized, half decentralized platforms where the value comes from decentralizing to the crowd, but then it's collected to centralized profits and centralized control versus the open source movement where people aren't even paid for their work. It's a really remarkable thing, but it's transparent and open. And the agreement is that we all share and collaborate to make something much bigger that then we all benefit from um, professionally. So I'm not sure which way it's going to go. And if our schools continue the way they are, it's going to go toward the dystopian centralized control and, you know, a, a rising mountain lowers all valleys rather than a rising, you know, tide lifts all boats. Um, and I, I, again, I, I really don't think it's likely to go the democratic way unless some big shift happens. And um, I think changing incentives in high schools is that key high leverage point to cause that change so that, our attention so that we start learning to manage our own attention. Or let me say differently, the communities that that do change incentives and start empowering the young people to manage their attention will eat everybody else's lunch. I'm going to jump back a bit, Nadav, for a moment, and then I'll come back to the end of jobs that you focus on as well. One of the things we mentioned several times, but I've just remembered I we haven't described is this concept of inversion. Now, I know people will visualize what that means. It's flipping it upside down. But you talked about this ver inversion in business and also then in education. I thought it was really useful to understand inversion in business. And one of the things you talk about is that in banking, and you mentioned cryptocurrency before, but you say bankers see what's coming, even if they don't like it. The only thing anyone needs to create their own bank today is strong encryption and a community of clients who trust that bank in inverted commas with pr will protect their digital ledger of accounts from hackers. We can thank the bankers who invented these industries for making digital money decades ago, before they e we had even noticed they ever had in the first place. So let's use that as a way to share the concept of inversion and then take a moment to map the current topic of inversion onto the field of education. How about that? So inversion, at you, how the industrial model with factories, um, you would design a product, you would design some marketing, and you would you know push it out so that people would need to want it. And then you'd make sure that it broke pretty quickly so that people would have to buy the next version. Um, and that's true. I mean, the financialization of the economy was the next step where, you know, now all we cared about is stock prices and, and things became so abstract and it kind of 
um, went 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 crazy and just um, getting numbers of stock to go up rather than even having a product at all. But the the inversion is from the industrial, so that's kind of the in, the financialization of the economy was kind of a, a, a period in between that led us to the to this new digital cryptocurrency phase. Um, but so from that top down, and you know, if we look at capital, I think is a good way to look at inversion. So in the old model, you would have these madman style um, advertisers paid by these factories to push these products down, and then we would consume them. And in that model, as a sidebar, the I think that um, advertisers are really the main educators in America. Most of our education comes from advertising, not from our schools, right? Now, so that's the top down. You have one person at the top that controls everything. They decide what product, they decide the box it goes in, and they push it out um, to us to need to want it. And then they make the profit centrally. The inverted model, somebody puts on a website, hey, this is a product we're looking at. And then people invest in it and say, hey, I would like that product. They haven't built it. They have it, don't have a factory. They don't have anything. They just have the concept. So it's that abstracted product. They put the product on a website, on a screen with pictures, with images, with ideas, with concepts. They get a community to support it. And then the consumers become the investors. They even can become the designers, right? So the, the that inversion is the people that consume it at the end, the edges, the, the mass, the crowd are the ones that contribute to making the product and that actually ends up being a more competitive product, a stronger product, and one that doesn't have to be remade so often because it's not having to be forced from the top down for us to consume. It's actually one that we can share often in the digital economy. There's a lot of sharing, whether it's bikes or cars um, or ideas or media, right? So the in the digital realm where you can distribute things and the difference, the, the way we were able to invert things is because in the digital realm, you can make a million copies of something with no cost. Whereas in the industrial with brick and mortar, it costs for every unit of production. So you talk about marginal costs um, in a digital sense, that goes away. And now you can start creating a fictitious product, a fictitious car, design it with the end users, and then they have bought in. And you know, you don't need to do the advertising because it's their car, right? Um, so that's the inversion. It's pushing things out to the edges where the data is, where people are using things. And that's really what the stock market has been doing for 400 years, right? It's getting prices from the crowd. That is inversion. So the the financial sector has been doing that kind of inverted thinking for quite a long time. And it's just now with digital technology, it's now available for all of us to do with all sorts of other products like our cars and Uber and our houses with Airbnb and other things um, because of that abstraction and crowdsourcing. So, so again, inversion is just turning things over to the crowd, the crowdsourcing piece using, um, using the... Um, digital tools. So using abstraction to put things on, on digital tools. That's, um, and so you were saying for money or forms of capital, um, social capital, for example, on Twitter, you learn the algorithm, you, you collect the likes, you collect the retweets, whatever it is that you're collecting. Um, and then you become an influencer. Whereas the old industrial version, you would get, it was Madison Avenue ad companies that would decide what was getting pushed out. Right. So that's, again, the inversion. Anybody can become an influencer if they learn the algorithm, they learn how to collect the data um, and they they learn the platform. It's literally learning versus the old model where you'd get hired by a centralized firm by the boss and the boss would tell you what to push out and it would go top down. It's a top down versus bottom up. But again, it could it doesn't mean that this is more democratic because look at Facebook, even though the content is made by um, the crowd and all of the content, all the value of the platform comes from the crowd it's and and people's attention the profits are still being centralized and there's still a central authority that controls all the data. 
And so the data, which is that abstraction of the physical products, that data is where economic value lives. And if our young people do not understand that their attention is their value proposition and the data their attention generates is actually the measure of that, then that's how they can become influencers. For example, if they don't understand how that system works, um, platforms like Microsoft are going to keep just you know, harvesting human beings for their profit. Yeah, it's a really important point, both for the children of the future, but also I think this is something that so many of the organizations I work with, I work with legacy organizations that are grappling with new business models, etc. And then abstraction, they're really struggling with that as well. And maybe you'll say a word on those, those new, those old business models that are built on the old way of doing things are really struggling with this new world. Going from physical products to media, right? If social media creates social capital, right? So media creates capital. And what we're doing on our platform, academic media, creating academic capital for all these platforms to see that they're, you know, for one of my favorite examples, Western Union, right? Which is they have they have this gold store of, um, you know, when you when you do Western Union transfer, you have to give a secret word to the person on the other side, right? And then the person has to say their secret question and the person, right? That's how they that's how they um, unlock the money on the other side. That database of people's secret questions and the crazy answers, um, I, I think, is a huge. It's, it's amazing. They could do shows. There's so much interesting data in there, but they don't get that that weird media, that data, has value. They're still obsessed with controlling the money transfer, right? So, for these businesses to look and where they have data, where they have media that's valuable, where they've collected any kind of media about human attention, frankly, um, it's a it's a hard transition. And it's a leap of faith to go to the crowd and have them design your products rather than your internal, right? But once, rather than your internal design team. But once you do that, the crowd is so powerful. Um, there are so many different types of thinking, so many people that could think out that you don't have to worry about who you're hiring. You don't, right? If you can open things up, but it's a, you know, Google, when they were starting, opened everything up to the world because they saw that getting more people onto the internet would help them. Um, and now that they have a platform with Google search, they've now closed that up. But that it takes that leap of faith for businesses to open everything up and, and expose what they think is their intellectual property and make it available to everybody. So everybody starts using it so that everybody comes to their platform um, to take advantage of that because they have the brand recognition and that um, it's, it's that influencer status, right? It's, it's how people perceive you matters more than what your product really is. Um, and so, you know, Disney is starting to realize that, that they have this brand and they have followers and that they can now monetize. And I, in, the, in the book, I make they give the example of cornmeal, right? The commodity cornmeal versus the product cornmeal in a box with the right ingredients. So you just have to add water versus cornmeal that's already made for you, which is the service versus you pay money for a cruise. The cornmeal is for the cornbread is free, right? And the experience. And so companies have to start transitioning from focusing on the commodity that they control over to generating either products or services or even better experiences because the experience, then you can give away the commodities for free, but people will pay a tremendous amount to be at a candlelit boat ride um, and they'll pay a tremendous amount and your, and your cornbread will earn you much more money than it would have in a box on the shelf or um, even as finished cornbread as a service. And so that transition to focusing down on human needs and what humans are interested in, what captures human attention um, is a, is a, is a massive leap from the top-down command and control that we're used to. 
Yeah, and for those people interested in that, those economic jumps in value, you got to check out a couple of episodes I did with the brilliant uh, Joe Pine, who wrote the book, The Experience Economy. He's a friend of the show and has been guest. We also did an in-person show with Joe a couple of years ago before the lockdown. But bringing it back to, we mentioned there, Nadav, the businesses that don't get it or are struggling to get their heads around it. But then you think about the businesses that absolutely get it, they understand network effects, for example, Facebook, I remember when Facebook first uh, was launched, it was IPO, the you know, it goes through the usual spike, and then the trough of despair as everybody kind of goes, Oh, what's that? There's no business model. And I can imagine the exec suite in Facebook kind of going, wait for it, wait for it, get them hooked, get everybody on and then turn the switch. And that's exactly what happened. And you talk about inversion in self driving cars, and you pose the following question. Despite their very different business models, why are Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Domino's, Uber and Tesla all investing massive amounts of capital into designing and producing self driving cars? This one is fascinating. You know, if you can lock a human being in a box, <laughs> you have their attention captive, right? And so if attention is a scarce resource, now every time you need to get anywhere, they have your attention. They can put ads in front of you. They can control even not ads. They can push music that you might like, right? They now have control of your attention, which changes your preferences, which changes even how you vote. And so it's a tremendous amount of power to have every person in every car on the planet that you control that environment. And so they'll give you the car for free if you are willing to be fed whatever they want to feed you and they'll feed you stuff that you like. It's not going to even be stuff you don't like. It's not going to be not going to feel like advertising. It's going to be based on AI studying you, finding what kind of music what, what kind of things you like and and you know gently inserting the products that are, you know, paying them to control that environment. And so if you can control the environment, if you can capture people's attention, that is the business model of the future. Okay, I'm going to jump from there, which is fascinating stuff, understanding the captive model and understanding how, you know, one of the things that I've, I thought about was, I used to work in media, I used to work in radio. And I used to talk about the competitor not being another radio station, but being, for example, car manufacturers and people in radio were kind of going, what, what's this nut job talking about? And I was like, going, well, if I'm Daimler Benz, for example, and I see the future of cars is ownerless, ownerless vehicles that are autonomous. That means I own the radio in the car. And actually, most times if somebody gets a taxi, for example, it's a taxi driver who chooses what's on the radio, or what radio station it's tuned into. And I was saying, well, actually, what if in the future, the the car manufacturer actually not only controls the media center, but also starts selling advertising. And then to your point, on top of that, it knows through the app, what type of preferences you have, because maybe you give over that data in order to get a cheaper ride. And all of a sudden, your competitors, uh, a car manufacturer, and I think that type of thinking sparks from the breadth of reading you get for, from your work from other brilliant guests I've had on the show. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. I think you nailed it. If we can, um, the the tricky part for me and what concerns me is as the AI gets to know you, and as we've learned that you know Facebook can then start manipulating 
you know, people get things on their Facebook feed that they didn't even click on. Were inter- they weren't even interested on that. The AI just because somebody else recommended or whatever else you end up getting um, and you end up getting things in your feed. And what they want is things that, are, you know, that, that cause emotion because that's what's most memorable. And that's what has things stick. And so what's what I'm focused on is how do we prepare citizens for that world where they're being fed those things? And in particular, how do we have them have those cross-cutting identities so that it's much harder for the AI to target them and that they have that, which is, I think, the foundation of critical thinking is those cross-cutting identities that they can ask questions and they can be skeptical of what they're hearing um, rather than just buying in wholeheartedly because they fit into that bucket so well that the radio, it's like, it's speaking to me, you know, it's that, that I can't believe it. That's what I was thinking. Right. Well, you should believe it because you fed it all the data to tell it how to feed you. Right. And so the, um, how can we create education where students are exposed to ways of thinking that are, that they're not normally exposed to and exposed to people that are different than their parents, um, kind of that's where my bread and butter and that's my interest but it's really what, what you set up is exactly what i'm imagining is this world where the car manufacturer controls the radio and is feeding you exactly what you think you want and love and then slowly guiding you into what they want you to think and love um and that's that's quite terrifying frankly and and it and it again leads to that rising mountain lowers all values scenario where we have a very few people on the planet that have all the capital um and everybody else is um giving their data for free and being used and, um, you know, and we have a very, very, very poor class as we do in America, the richest country in the history of planet Earth um, and people right here in my neighborhood who um, can't afford and don't not only can't afford, have no relationship to money um, at all. They, they have no idea what to do with it because every time they've gotten it, it gets stolen from them in one way or another from advertising or from government programs or whatever it is. So it's um, it's it's really if we do not get control of this soon, if we do not start educating our young people in this soon, um, I think we're going to end up with you know, I, frankly, blood on the streets. I think it ends up being physical revolution that happens because we stop caring for human beings because the human beings have turned into the products that we're advertising that we're selling. It's a huge question, and and you know you you do talk about meditation. Yuval Noah Harari talks about meditation as being a super skill of the future. One of the other things I thought was, if, for example, you think about many of our viewers as well of our listeners, many are well paid, maybe uh, both, both, uh, if they're married, both work, um, they earn a lot of money. But uh, the cost is often huge. And I've been there myself. I'm not I'm not preaching here at all. By the way, I've, I've been there. I'm only snapping out of it. I'm only awakening. And, and I do think there's a, an awakening across the planet, hopefully, to go, well, there's more important things than stuff. And there's more, you know, for example, our, we both have children, our children grow up really, really quickly. So I want to be present. And I don't mean physically, I mean, mentally, as well as physically present when I'm present. And and that's always a challenge for me, I, I always have to work on that. But then also, that I don't want to just fill up my time by working in order to buy stuff. Because where you know, one of the biggest th- things I get told all the time is people is like, where do you have the time to read? Where do you have the time to write? How do you make and I kind of go, well, I make that time, I, I actually carve out attention span for myself. And then I train myself. And one of the reasons I write Nadav is actually to train myself to be able to critically think, 
and that's difficult like it is really really difficult because I have to often work on that I make sacrifices in order to do that and it's one of the things I really hope will happen from these shows is to just inspire others to do that as well because it's so essential for our futures for our happiness and for those for the planet that's the scarcity human attention and when we take that attention for ourselves and invest it in ourselves and our families and our communities you know anything's possible but the algorithms and the screens are so well designed to ring the bell right when we and to you know buzz the phone right when we are pulling away um, and giving our attention to ourselves that they pull that attention back for their purposes. Um, and so mindful, like you said, mindfulness practices like writing, these are the things that are going to save us. Um, but people have to learn to pull their attention back for their own use rather than um, handing it over to platforms, um, you know, and then being manipulated by what they see on those platforms. It's a, it's um, a monumental task, but I getting to know the young people today, they have a much better sense of it than we did. Um, and so there is a chance if our education system um, can engage them in these ideas and have them um, practice and build the muscles of using our own attention um, in, in writing and in creating um, in producing rather than consuming, um, we, we definitely have a chance with this generation because they enjoy the experience and creation is an experience, right? And so they really value if instead of a social studies class where you study about the way government works, if instead you go to a, a political rally and interview people, it's such a better experience of high school, being out of the school, being out in the street with microphones. Um, and then the editing process is such a, if we can get kids to experience it, they will get addicted because our brain is designed to addict us to those experiences, right? But we're fighting against very powerful forces that know us better than we know ourselves. Um, and the the difference for me is really open source, closed source, right? If these, if we have platforms that are transparent in how they work um, and that are controlled by a community versus platforms that don't show you how they work, that are closed and opaque and, and hold all the data, um, that's, the, that's the battle that's happening right now. And we don't know which way it's going to go. And my argument is that um, without you, leveraging public education, because like the car where you have people's attention captive, you know, the car is for, for, you know, 40 minute rides. High school is four years. We have these kids captive, right? Four years. We have an opportunity to separate them from the influence of the screens and have them engage in the world in a way that is meaningful. And that is a massively lost opportunity right now. But if we can learn to leverage it, if we can't have kids running around our local community as reporters, telling stories that are interest to them and applying academic skills of research and writing, we have a chance to really have AI work for us and with us, right? And then AI will be the, your, your companion, your pocket that empowers you, that gives you superpowers. So you don't have to do the tedium um, that, that we used to do. You don't have to do any of the robotic stuff. Um, and you can focus your attention instead of sorting through all this data that's coming at you on social media, you can get, let the AI pull out what you want rather than what Facebook wants you to see. You can use the AI to screen out and create your feed for you, right? But we're not there yet. Right now, it's still the centralized big brother that's deciding what you see not you deciding what you see. And that's a big problem. We, we were talking there about, you know, not getting stuck in the in the trap of consuming the consumption trap, if you want to call that and, and spending all your time there. But also the other thing is measurement. So how how governments are measured, you know, on job creation, for example, being one of the metrics of, of governments, you talk about an RFK quote, and you said, 
the gross national product does not allow for health of our children, the quality of our education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except what that which makes life worthwhile. I absolutely love that. And it introduces the next idea, which is the end of jobs, but not the end of jobs in a negative sense, but the birth of a higher order than jobs. So if the robotic work can be done by robots, what's left for us? And if attention is the resource that we're fighting over, it's really what captures human attention. Where are our passions? What um, and it's and you know, like we mentioned earlier, it's passions that Facebook wants to ignite, right? It's passions that cause engagement and have you stick and stay on on something. And that includes doing work. If you have a passion for something, um, you you stick to it and you get through it and you do better work. And so uh, learning to measure, and I think that academic capital actually will be a leading economic indicator, right? Because if we can predict which school systems and which communities are educating our kids to be critical thinkers and to be creators rather than consumers, we can start predicting which com which communities are going to outperform in a digital economy. And so the government, it's in their interest to start wondering where are we preparing young people to be influencers, to be creators and rather than consumers. And that's going to, like I said, be a leading indicator. And it's going to let us see where economic value is being generated. Um, and it's a just focusing on gross national product and on these average style um, calculations where instead, it's not even the median, we're using mean style calculations, right? And so the example I give in the book is if there's a bar that we're at and everybody has, everybody's um, from a certain bank at that bar and it's all the tellers there at the bar, right? And they all make, you know, $25,000 a year. And then the CEO walks in the way we measure value right now um, would say that the clientele in the bar in general went up, but it's just one person because we do an average. But if you do the median, you still see that the median person there is still making twenty five thousand um, dollars. And so by 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 measuring the wrong thing, we start thinking that we're creating value when we're not. If I work for a company right now, we were talking that you know, 94% of new jobs were created from uh, 2005, 2015 were temporary or part-time. That's because in the financialized economy, you could have a job with benefits and paid family leave and, you know, sick leave, things like that. And then you get fired and rehired as a contractor. Well, they save 30% of fringe benefits. You still are doing the job. And from the uh, perspective of the industrial corporation, that's economic and, and the way the government measures it, that would be an economic advantage. We have done better by firing you and rehiring you as a contractor. But on the human level, we've now destroyed families, right? We've increased stress levels. And we know that when you're dealing with financial circumstances, you don't think clearly. We've, we have a lot of evidence on that. And so we're really destroying our culture, destroying our economy from the grassroots. We're, we're, we're killing it. Um, but our measurements are saying we're doing much better. And so starting to learn how to measure the uh, human attention side and where our passions are and the type of work, you know, people always say that you need to do, um, they say you need to have a job for mental health because it's how our identity is, is formed, but it's actually doing work 
that the human is driven, right? It's, it's meaningful work and having society recognize our contributions that fires us up and gets us, um, gives us internal psychological strength, not these jobs where you were punch and punch out and hated every minute of it. And so it's incumbent on the um, economists to start measuring how human beings work because the new digital economy is based on human attention as um, as the resource. And so it's a, it's a really different way of thinking, but if it's not co-opted by, by a half industrial, half digital model like Facebook is, if it's given to um, people to innovate and to create communities and to use their attention in ways that add value to the economy, um, this could be a very humanistic change. I'm not optimistic about that right now, but there is an opportunity and the window of opportunity is closing, but there is an opportunity for us to, to you know, it's, it's what Marx was saying that the, you know, he, he didn't get that the, that the means of production would be within us and our creativity. He thought it'd be in factories, right? But if, if you take his ideas and you get that the means of production is actually human ingenuity, human creativity and innovation, that's, that's going to drive a digital economy. Um, I think a lot of his ideas about the, um, uh, the you know the worker and things coming back to the to the worker make a lot more sense um, and it so it doesn't have to be a bloody revolution unless you know we keep centralizing profits and and um, destroying our our communities and destroying our own sense of purpose I think Nadav you know I thought about that what you said about you know hiring people back as as freelancers and a lot of organizations try to use both the coronavirus pandemic and the financial crisis in 0809 as a re as a way to do that. So they didn't really need to but they let go of a lot of people and then hire them back and kind of like people were so desperate they were like, well, I'm lucky to have a job. And and actually that is I think that's just a horrible thing to do is actually use these crises, don't let them go to waste. But I wanted to talk about something because this was really interesting. And this is me going slightly off piste again where I live most of the time. <laughs> and uh, it's the origin of jobs. I, I thought this was so important to understand that we are originated doing things that we enjoyed doing, we worked the land, whatever hunter gatherers, etc. As we went up through their agrarian age, we, you know, we we worked the land, we, we didn't work nine to five, none of that stuff, because we worked for ourselves. So we, we actually were able to be with our families, eat with our families, all that kind of stuff and be present. And you talk about the origin of jobs, which first emerged when European monarchs felt threatened by the rising merchant class in the early 15th century, initially a peer to peer form of money called market money invented by the Moors allowed merchants to transact outside of the control of the monarchy. To deal with this, the rulers gave out exclusive monopolies to their favorite companies, forcing everyone else to become employees. I think that's important to go because you talk about this, let's get back to the origins of education. But it's also the origins of work as well. Work is in, involves producing something, not just doing time, right? Not just um, serving some top down hierarchy. What we get value from is when we can contribute. And the best way to have people contribute is to give them, you know, like that experiment with the button, to give them the autonomy to say, and that's what the Japanese production model did with uh, factories. You know, they said, you have, you can stop the production line yourself. Nobody ever does. But the fact that they were given that autonomy and given that respect um, and built that trust, and it's back to, uh, it's, it's back to trust, right? It's, it's, we needed a centralized authority for trust. 
And now that we can trust computer networks that we design and we can read how they're designed and, and put trust in that network, um, it's it's really all about have if you are trusted as a human being and you can produce value, that is what is best psychologically and economically. And um, I think Welch and, and a lot of business and, and Bezos had see that these small teams and empowering people at the edges is really where you can be economically agile. Um, these top-down um, approaches where somebody at the top has to be almighty and all understanding um, where the CEO is expected to, to run the ship and that what the CEO says matters, but then anybody below that, what they say doesn't matter, that's just not going to be viable anymore. But it's um, that top-down command and control military style is, like you said, since the 1500s is how we've been doing jobs. And it's a really hard thing. Like you said, companies that are struggling are struggling of letting go control and trusting the edges to then contribute to the community as a whole. And what's valuable is the community that's built, the culture that's built, um, the institution that's built. And it's, um, you know, the superstar CEO running things from the top uh, just can't do it anymore. It doesn't work anymore, but um, they're going to hold on for dear life because they like that advantage. And like you said, the edges, the people at the edges, the people at the coal face, those people are actually the ones experiencing the changes in the landscape. So they need some type of medium to be able to share that information to the people making the decisions. And even better that they can make decisions in those small pizza sized teams, as you mentioned. But I, I just wanted to ensure and, and address the possibility that it may seem like we're drifting from the field of education in the discussion. And you say this in the book as well, it's important. But it's vital to have a fund, a foundational understanding about digital platforms, about how blockchain works, about how open platforms work, etc. As the solution you propose in the book will depend on the platform model serving as a vehicle for organizing teachers and students as they exchange academic work for credit. So with that, Let's give an overview of digital app, uh, digital platforms or apps, as you call them. Not, not NFTs is where I want to get because I think that for education is really the technology that um, has codified the work that I've been doing for twenty years, and suddenly now there is a, a name for it. Um, and we talked about this a little bit before. In the digital world, we have these new forms of capital, right? These apps are generating new forms of capital. Capital used to just mean factories and gold and steel, right? Um, and and owned. Um, assets in the physical world. In the digital world, capital is media, essentially, and brand. Um, and so the NFT, what the NFT does is it combines media to create capital, right? So it takes a, a, a image and it makes it unique in a digital sense so that you can then sell it and turn that piece of media into capital. Um, and in high schools, then the student's output is a, a piece of media that then we create academic capital out of. So these apps like Twitter that um, can create social capital by using people's thoughts, by taking their attention and what they put out to, to create somebody that has followers and then that followers turns into social capital. That is what these apps, um, kind of how they work is you, um, through content um, and the production of content, you then create capital. Um, so that's, that is the heart of uh, of how things are working. It's human attention, it's human curiosity, it's learning, right? All those things are built into this because to produce content that, that people want to watch has to resonate with what's important to human beings, right? The idea is that in a digital world, um, these apps generate capital in ways that in the industrial economy, um, 
we couldn't do because things were physical and you couldn't reproduce and you couldn't share and you couldn't um, build off of each other um, at the edges like you can now with digital, um, being able to transmit things instantly across the globe with no costs. One of the things, Nadav, I wanted to share was, was the importance of uh, digital platforms, but also network effects. And maybe I'll explain here by uh, quoting how the iPhone App Store was responsible for the iPhone upsetting BlackBerry. It wasn't just the phone. It was actually the ecosystem and the network effects that came with that. And you said the iPhone is expensive. So this is the iPhone versus BlackBerry. The iPhone is expensive. BlackBerry is cheaper with better battery life security and that glowing pearl mouse. But then again, Angry Birds, Angry Birds is free and it's not available on the BlackBerry store. So, so is that map app. So I don't have to buy an expensive Garmin to keep me to give me driving instructions. But that's not enough to pay an extra $200 for an iPhone because I like my BlackBerry keypad. But wait, there are thousands of other apps available on the iPhone store, and I get them mostly for free. Those apps have real value for me. And if I include the estimated price of all that software, actually, the iPhone seems less expensive. That's such an important thing, the whole idea of network effects, but network effects in a constellation of ways and traditional business struggle to understand platform business models. So I thought this would be a good way to describe this, both with the network effects and then the platform business model, because this we talked about how legacy organizations struggle to understand this. This is something they definitely struggle to understand. I think it should be called platform effects, not network effects, right? A, a platform is multiple networks that are brought together, right? So drivers and riders, um, you know, you look at Apple, the people that make the apps on the app store and people that use the apps. So that when you pull together multiple networks, multiple communities of people and bring them together, and there has to be some kind of search feature for them to find each other, for the driver to find the rider and, and um, um, vice versa. Um that's what a platform is. It's just multiple networks brought together through a tool, through an app, and with some kind of search feature. Um, and once you have a platform, then the your dominance starts accelerating because if you are, if you take any one of those industries, if you take taxis, if you have the riders and you have the drivers, it's very hard for somebody else to come in there with their own app because how do they get the drivers? How do they that chicken and egg thing? How do they kickstart so that there's enough drivers for riders to want, enough riders for drivers to want? So network effects hold when you get enough people to start using a platform, when you get multiple networks of size to come onto a platform, it's very hard to disrupt that platform. And you know, it's kind of like the the highway system was for the industrial age, right? It's the infrastructure. These platforms are the infrastructure on which digital economics function. Um, and so some of the like Google search or um, the operating system, these are foundational um, utilities almost, right? The way the phone company became a utility in the in the industrial age, or the roads became a utility that we own together and we share but within the commons. Um, the These platforms are quickly becoming the utilities that drive the digital um, age. And the question is, but right now the utilities are owned by single companies and the profits are still centralized. The question is, will we be able to transition to a place where the utilities really are in service of the people rather than in service of the profit takers at, at the top? Um, but it's a it's a tricky thing because those network effects are very strong and very hard to disrupt. And I'm not convinced that, like I said before, I think big government and big business are the same thing. So I don't trust government 
anymore to um, use antitrust or anything else like that, or to or to take ownership to make it utility the way they might have done with phones or roads or broken up. I don't think any of that will work. The government is a top-down model, and so it's not the right approach to deal with decentralized um, business models. The only way to do that is to um, ensure decentralization of the data so that we control and hold our own data and open source codes so that we can look and see how the platform functions and, and we can hold them account, hold the platform accountable because we know the logic. Right now, the way Google works, the way Facebook, their algorithm, nobody can see, right? But if you create that similar kind of platform where everyone could see the platform, they would be outraged by how it's currently working and we could start redesigning the algorithm to serve us um, and each one of us then could tweak the algorithm, the AI to work for us based on what we're interested in. Um, but that's a power grab. That's going to take democracy winning over, you know, whatever you want to call the current business model that's top down. And although it's very much in the ethos of America to have uh, democratic values, in point of fact, we have often been more about um, capitalism than we have about democracy. And we have often subverted democracy in other countries for our own profit. And so this country is at a point of reckoning. In America, we're at a point of reckoning. Are our democratic values going to win out over our capitalistic values? And ironically, if we allow our democratic values to win, we will make more money, right? And that's the piece that people don't get is the democratic values now, because gaining followers Right, which is a very democratic thing, just like a politician does. Gaining followers, gaining people, building a community, building these networks so you can put together on a platform. These are how you make money now. And so, really encouraging high quality democratic processes where people um, are able to think for themselves and make their own choices and have complex, um, you know, use of the technology is how the the countries that do that are the ones that are going to outperform everyone else. So democracy is now merging with economy so that the more democratic, the more decentralized platforms are the ones that are going to make the most money. But it's getting from here to there. How do we bridge that and getting from here to there without bonds, without a major collapse? The, the Often how this happens is that there is a major collapse. There's a, you know, a, a massive, very painful um, falling apart. And that's most likely to happen. I argue that the peaceful revolution is through education, that if we start with education, we might, we might. And if we focus on 11th and 12th grade education in particular, in two years, you can have an outcome where the graduates are now understanding this and entering the workforce and are able to help us solve these problems because they're the ones that are going to find the solutions versus a lot of education reform that starts in pre-K. It takes 12 years to show any result, to show that they didn't make any difference, right? And now they've wasted 12 years by focusing on 11th and 12th grade only, we can really quickly iterate and get data and see if we're producing graduates that are able to create content rather than consume content and voters who are able to vote for democracy rather than oligarchy. Um, but without something like a, a massive transformation of our education system, where we're going to end is a massive collapse of the current system um, for the new one then to be born, but with great, great pain for everybody involved. I thought we we try and land the ship a little bit more. One of the things I really understood was, okay, so because because we we really need to mention the BIG, not the notorious BIG, <laughs> the, the UBI part of this because we mentioned Jay Z earlier on. Uh, so let's get closer to education. I thought this was useful. You tell us about Austin Alfred, founder of the Lombada School, who doesn't charge students for their education until they make over $50,000 per year. And then he takes 17% of their income until a maximum of 30,000 is repaid. And this is an example of an ISA, an in, in, 
an income sharing agreement, students who attend the school but subsequently never earn above 50,000 never pay for the education. So I thought that was a really important part because you look through that lens and you see, oh, okay, now I understand how the DNA works, the credits, but I also understand how I actually get towards a BIG as well. So maybe we'll put these two things together. In a digital economy, instead of in venture capital right now, invest in these top-down startups, right? They invest in a startup CEO usually, and they don't even care if they have a product yet. They'll say that. They just care they have a good team, right? In a digital economy, you invest in human beings. You invest at the edges, right? So an income sharing agreement is a great example of that. The, what their argument is, is that people are misplaced in the work marketplace. And by offering them some training, they can get them to be much more valuable for themselves and they can take a cut of that income um, on the backside. So they're investing in people and educating people and they're making a return on investment in people. And it's actually a much higher return on investment when you invest in individuals who you see have talent, but who currently don't have the training or the opportunity to be in a job where they can use that talent rather than investing in companies where 95% of them fail and a few of them become unicorns. So the new this new model of investment is investing in humans so that they can become more valuable contributors and then earn income and then you take a piece of that income. So basic income guarantee, um, the way we use it in the high school credit platform is actually linked to another piece I know you wanted to get to is the race and equity. So what we've done is I know in New York City is one of the most segregated school systems in the country. And I've watched in my 20 year career in the department or you know, 17 year career in the department, I've watched adults try to address it and fail over and over. But I know that if we incentivize the young people and say, we'll give you cryptocurrency rewards, if you can um, increase your access to people who are not like you. Um, and so what that looks like is people can get these credits with these NFTs. They, that's the first piece. But then um, like in any school, you have kind of an awards ceremony at the end of the term where certain students win awards. The awards in this platform come when students can combine their NFTs across zip codes. If they can take a bunch of NFTs in different zip codes, they can put them together and mint a block of capital, meaning the media coming out of that block is as diverse as the city. So they ensure diversity, and then they get this basic income in, in cryptocurrency um, given out to them for 25 years. So the incentive is to go out and find students if in the zip code that's not producing these high quality project-based credits and share resources for the students in that zip code. Because if they do, then you can mint academic capital and then you can get this basic income award. And so what we're doing is we're investing in young people who have shown that they can work with people who think differently than them and that they understand the value of diversity. And that's frankly, I think more important than calculus right now is learning to work with people that think differently than you. So going to, to be able to from a different socioeconomic class that interaction is much deeper learning than being in a classroom where everybody thinks just like you do. And it's much better learning for a digital economy where we're trying to gain audiences of people that are very different and understand how humans work, not just the humans that look like you, right? So we're incentivizing with this basic income, with this academic capital coin, we're investing in young people who have shown that they know how to work with people and they know how to produce content. And so then we're going to help the transition from the industrial to the digital because we're giving these young people some money to work with so they can create the solutions that we're waiting for. Um, so the the basic income piece is investing. It's the question we were asking in designing the platform is how do we select the exact right people to invest in to get us through this transition? What we said is it's people that learn how to create content, which is what our project-based credit system is based on, but then people that know how to learn how to work across socioeconomic divides, right? And break down the walls that we have right now, our students are studying in these separate 
you know, silos with people that are just like them, that doesn't serve us. The, the, you know, in a digital world, we're going to end up having class warfare in this country where the people in the, in the countryside are going to fight the people in the cities. We need to start breaking those barriers down and having people interact with each other across those barriers if democracy is going to survive, if we're not going to be easily manipulated, if our choices are going to be very independent, critically thought choices. Um, and so we're incentivizing on the platform with this basic income. We're, in, we're investing in the young people that have proven themselves to be capable of this. And we're dealing with the race and equity issue at the same time by having the students share resources rather than asking the schools to figure out how to do that. I think we've we've covered everything and we've got so, so far. There's so much knowledge and I told you I learned so much and it was great to get different perspectives on stuff that I thought I knew already and kind of get new nuggets of information as well. So I really really enjoy the book. I dedicated so much time to it over the last couple of weeks. I, re I really tried to find as much time as possible. I don't often get through the whole books, but I absolutely made sure and I canceled meetings and postponed them in order to get through your book. So uh, uh, absolutely fantastic read and very relevant for so many of the subjects we cover on this show. Where can people find out more about the projects, about your work, about the book, etc.? Uh, LinkedIn, N-Zemmer, N-Z-E-I-M-E-R on LinkedIn. The book's website is educationinthedigitalage.com. Can people get involved, Nadav? How can they get involved? The best way for, right now, the easiest way to get involved is college interns can apply. If you look at um, my LinkedIn, you'll see a flyer there for the internship. We have a limited number of, of spots. So college interns are kind of can take us to the next level. Once we have the app out, and, and so right now it's the sweat equity of young people that can be invested. There are investors. We're not taking other investment um, because if we started to pay people and burn money, we'd have our time preference would, um, you know, would go down and um, or would go up, sorry, and we would then be pushing for time and to deal with the money rather than focus on the quality of student work and making the platform work. So right now, the only way to invest is to contribute time. But if you have an expertise, if you want to join the team, we're a team of 20 people right now. We all have day jobs. We do this on the side so you can get in touch with me if you're interested and you think you can contribute. Um, down the road, there and there will be an opportunity to make tax deductible contributions to the platform so that teachers get paid for grading the work. Um, and I can share more about the economic model of how the platform will sustain itself um, in the long term of where we get our money. But uh, right now, just being interested, following us, being in touch with me, I'd love to share about this. Um, and as the young people build the platform, you will uh, be able to contribute by using the app itself. Wonderful. And Nadav, I'm going to let you finish today's show, perhaps with your final message to our audience. But I pulled a quote that I absolutely loved. This quote spoke to me, but also encapsulated one of the reasons I do this show. And it goes as follows. Citizens who are critical thinkers are inoculated against mass media manipulation and serve as a buffer to government capture at the ballot box. There is no answer to a free society beyond educating humans to be lifelong learners. Every other proposition can be gamed. That's how I'm going to finish the show. What about you? What's your final message for our audience? So Uber has no cars. Airbnb owns no hotels. Alibaba has no big box stores. HS Credit has no schools. We are a platform of high school transcripts. We are abstracted learning to create something called academic capital using crowdsourcing. And uh, we welcome everyone to come define what a high school credit is, um, to send your young people to generate content on the platform. Um, and we really look forward to uh, having this grow and become something that can engage our young people in the creation of content rather than the passive consumption of it. Author of Education in the Digital Age, How We Get There, Principal Zed, Nadav Zemmer, thank you for joining us.
Thank you so much for the opportunity. As always, thanks to our friends at Zai. Zai is a global fintech innovating in their area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. By supporting them, you're supporting us at hellozai.com.